Welcome. You're listening to Angel Nears, the podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders where founders and operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Oleg Kujikov, and our guest today is Maxime Lamoth Brassard, co-founder and CEO of Lima Charlie that enables organizations to detect and respond to threats, automate processes, reduce the number of vendors they use, and future-proof their security and operations. I'm excited to bring Maxime on to talk about bringing an engineering approach to cybersecurity through the security infrastructure as a service model. More on that later and its implications. But before we get into that, Maxime, uh, welcome to the show. Hi, super happy to be here. Yep. Excited to have you. And I like to start these interviews off with a little intro. So um, let's start here. Where are you joining us from? I'm currently in Vancouver in Canada. Oh, fun. I always wanted to end up there. What did you study in school and how do you like spending your free time? Um, so I went to the University of Victoria um, in, in British Columbia here in Canada and I studied computer science uh, business option. So that was sort of like uh, computer science with a sort of minor in business. So, you know, things like accounting and all that stuff. And then, yeah, free time. What do you do outside of like cybersecurity? Oh, um, I, I've done a lot of things over the years. I, I tend to like, uh, you know, pick up a thing and really love it and then just do that for a while. Um, I would say the latest um, sort of my, my latest hobby has been uh, free diving. So like uh, apnea, right? So just like uh, like scuba diving without a tank, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've had friends that have tried that. Crazy stuff. That's really cool. All right. Well, you know, preparing for this interview, one thing I noticed was, you know, just kind of a wealth of industry experience that you have. You've worked at a unicorn, CrowdStrike. You worked at Google and one of the uh, cybersecurity divisions at Google, even, that, that I think was started when you were there. And now you're starting your own company. So you've kind of done it all. Um, but how did you get started in cybersecurity? And yeah, take us through your journey. Yeah, I mean, I've always been pretty interested in cybersecurity, but, um, you know, it, it's, it wasn't at the time when I was in university. So I graduated in 2007. It wasn't, um, there wasn't like programs going into that. So I did a couple of um, what they called co-op semesters. So it's like an internship at CSE. Uh, which is the Communication Security Establishment in Canada, which is essentially the NSA in Canada. And um, so I did a couple of terms there and got, you know, a, a job right out of university to, to go there. So it was a really, it was a fascinating um, way to get into security, kind of into the deep end. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I had to learn everything I know about security uh, sort of very practically, uh, because I, I kind of joke sometimes like, yeah, you know, the first co-op semester I did uh, was doing uh, Java web app development to build a uh, parking management website for that organization. So it had nothing to do with security. Um, but thankfully, uh, you know, I kind of showed a lot of interest in the, the groups that were doing more interesting security related things in the organization. And uh, by, by, you know, reading a whole lot and really getting in touch with the people in those groups, um, eventually got a shot at doing an internship. And uh, it was really kind of, uh, 
it was kind of love at, love at first sight in a way uh, for, for me because um, there was so much to learn and so little framework around it. Uh, that it meant that the only way to learn was sort of through, you know, brute force passion uh, and hours, uh, you know, going through through everything and learning about different platform and, you know, how software works under the hood and operating systems and all of that stuff. So that's that's kind of how it started. And then, you know, I've, I've tried to keep the passion going uh, ever since, I guess. Can you talk more about, like, some of those experiences like working at CrowdStrike versus Google and, and maybe what kind of cybersecurity you were working on at the time? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, starting into government, uh, because I was, I was there for many years. Uh, I would say that, uh, you know, what was really, uh, the best part of the, of it were sort of twofold. One was the mission. Um, you know, quite frankly, you don't, you don't join an organization like that. If you don't end up really, you know, believing in the mission and kind of, uh, believing what you're doing is kind of for the greater good. So that was, that was one of the things that was very, uh, very nice. The other aspect to it was that we were kind of doing security in a bubble, meaning, uh, we weren't really part of the private sector. Um, there was never, you know, this idea of, you know, which product are we going to buy out of the box to like make everything work magically. Um, so that meant that we had to figure out things internally. And so you ended up with a, a ton of people in the government that were extremely knowledgeable, uh, you know, really high performance people. And, uh, and so that was really, really cool. Great place to learn. Uh, CrowdStrike. Uh, CrowdStrike was also really interesting. I think it was sort of the, you know, I joined around employee 100. It was kind of the the heyday of um, uh, this might be a, you know a, a bit uh, in the weeds in terms of security, but it was the uh, the heyday of the the APT fever. Uh, so APT is a advanced persistent threat, and so it was right around the time when security was kind of going from a underground niche that you know people knew what an antivirus was, but that was pretty much it. And then that's when, uh, you know, Google got hit by China. Uh, there was, uh, you know, things like Stuxnet coming out. Uh, so some really high profile stuff. And so everybody was kind of looking for, um, you know, those really, really, really advanced, you know, hackers from other nations. And so it was a really interesting time to, uh, to be there. It was also kind of the polar opposite of where I was coming from, um, you know, going from the government, where, you know, the concept of, you know, what, you know, what's going to bring revenue was never, you know, anywhere near um, to, you know, private sector, you know, organization that was, you know, very much first and foremost, you know, there to build a business and grow. So I think it was, it was a really interesting way to do that transition. It was, it was, it was, it was a bit rocky for me, honestly. Um and then Google, uh, you know, Google again is totally different. Um, you know, Google was was fascinating. Obviously, a ton of really, really good people. Um, Google was amazing at doing things like um, uh, security hygiene internally, meaning you know, not necessarily just kind of the the cool uh, you know penetration testing or uh, finding hackers, but but I mean, yes, but also just this uh this very engineering approach at saying you know how can we eliminate a lot of the risks internally 
um, things that bring risk, things that make us vulnerable as an organization. So they were amazing for that. Uh, but it was also, you know, huge organization. So in some ways, it was like coming back a little bit to the government, right? Uh, uh, it's a big bureaucracy. Um, the mission was uh, a lot more of a thing, um, you know, where, I mean, you know, it, it's, a, it's a pretty great topic, right? Uh, Google in, in terms of like privacy and all that. But certainly the people that, that were in Google, uh, you know, truly did believe in, uh, you know, making the internet safer. Um, so I, I think that was, that was really cool. Yeah. yeah, that, that's a really cool story. And, and I forgot the name earlier, but you were working on Chronicle, uh, which is one of the first SEIMs. Can, can you talk about SEIMs and, and why that was kind of a change for the industry? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if, I, I don't know if I would say that Chronicle was one of the first few, uh, as, as, uh, sim s i e m right <laughs> i always mix I, I always mix it up myself you know I, I think the category existed prior to them uh i mean I'll, to take a step back right about like what is it and why was it interesting uh, is that um essentially google has this google x thing which is sort of a separate organization but really 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 closely related where they do moonshots uh so the idea is as corny as it sounds, uh, to take a couple, you know, take some people that are experts in the field and get them together to see uh, if they can do something that is, uh, you know, a home run or, or, you know, something that is really extraordinary in the field um, that may not be possible to do elsewhere. And if things go well, the idea is that then that, uh, that group spins off into their own company. Um, and uh, that is what happened with Chronicle. So Chronicle is kind of the the external company that was created for I don't know I think a, I think a good six months before it got bought back by uh, Google Cloud Platform, but um, it was spun out of Google X. And so the big um, I, I think the big difference or the big kind of theme that uh, Chronicle uh, had at the time was that we wanted to leverage. Um, the things that made Google very, very different, uh, or the advantages that Google had, and uh, you know, some the the two big ones I would say one was intelligence. So Google had a lot of access to very interesting data sources, right? They they have a whole internet on top of of the internet kind of thing, and the other one is that their infrastructure. Um, is uh, unparalleled and uh, at a scale that is really, really impressive. So putting those two things together, the theme was essentially, hey, um, let's allow people to push all of their logs into, uh, into Chronicle and we will store them. And instead of charging people based on the volume of the logs, which traditionally all other data lakes or, or SIM providers would do, they said, well, we can afford to ignore that aspect, not care about the volume and instead go and charge per analyst. So it was a different way of seeing kind of the, you know, how, how to quantify the value that they were bringing uh, to the table. So combining, you know, that bulk of information and the intelligence um, the idea was to you know, bring those together and then provide some value in terms of investigation and detection. Let's talk about enter- enterprise security operations centers. 
I look at these from the outside in. I've never been a part of one. I imagine it's different for you, but I want to hear more about like wh- what it's like working in one of these SOCs or security operations centers today, you know, um, basically since the internet went commercial, attackers have gotten, you know, more and more dangerous. Uh, They're evolving their strategies every day. And, you know, security teams have more point solutions and and use more tools than they ever have before. Um, That might sound like a good thing, but a study from Forrester Research claims that, you know, more tools and solutions can actually make detection and defending against attacks more difficult. Um, Can you talk about that as a problem and where we're at today with these enterprise uh, security operations centers? Sure, sure. You know, it's it's a big topic that will vary pretty wildly depending on on where you are. So I think I think you're, you're there's a good idea to kind of scope it around really enterprise, right? A bit larger enterprise to kind of narrow narrow the experience. But yeah, certainly we've you know I, I I've seen some uh, some reports that said something like a hundred and something different tools in large enterprise are used for security, and uh, you know the 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 challenge there is that we got there because uh, there's more and more attack surface in uh, in tech. So you know, if you look at kind of the evolution of, of technology, uh, you know, twenty years ago everything was a flat network of Windows boxes, and so the number of things that you could analyze and capture and try to block was fairly uh, fairly consistent across you know pretty much any organization out there on the planet. And over time, we've been adding in more, you know, more and more layers and types of devices and types of use cases and architectures for a lot of of IT. And what that's meant is that, uh, you know, more and more uh, people could come up with uh, technical solutions and products, essentially, that would uh, give some visibility and you know being able to to block or detect or do things like that in in the modern envi- modern environment. And I think uh, you know most of those tools are good. Um, so it's not a question of sort of the quality of the tools or anything like that. But like you said, um, ultimately, I think what where the industry is starting to realize is that um, the tools, are useful, uh, but they are not and will not be a replacement for uh, security professionals. Um, you know, sometimes I kind of put it put it as a as a little bit of a thought experiment of you know just imagining in in five or ten years, where's the security industry going to be? Um, you know, one path is, hey, uh, there's three companies on Earth that do this software package that secures all infrastructure. You don't need anybody with really advanced knowledge. You know, anybody out of college just deploys it on your enterprise and now you're secure and you're kept secure by that vendor. Uh, And that applies to anybody out there. The other path is, well, it turns out that difficult things are difficult. And, uh, you know, this is engineering and the, the, the surface of technology is growing, uh, which means that, uh, Enterprise is diverging in many ways, right? If you're General Motors, what your enterprise network will look like is going to be completely different than if you're an insurance company. And this idea that a single, you know, a single vendor or or a collection of independent single vendors like that can 
come in and somehow be the full picture of security just isn't, you know, isn't realistic in my opinion. I really wish it was because that, that would, you know, that would make, uh, you know, the planet much a safer place. Um, but I think what it drives to is that the industry uh, needs to mature, which is what it's doing now. And, and so it's kind of uh, ramping up its understanding of itself. So the security operations center today is realizing that it's not just about, you know, buying the right category as defined by Gartner, but rather about how will you put them together and how you're able to make those work for you, right? If you're General Motors, it's my go-to example, but like, you know, if you're GM uh, and you're trying to build that for you internally, um, you will have to go and consider what your network is like, uh, you know, what your attack surface is like, where your vulnerabilities are, and then bridge the gap between all of the tools that you have and what you're actually trying to do. And, you know, nobody's going to do that with a magic bullet. It's, uh, it, it's going to be done by intelligent people learning more and more about how to think about security and just building it uh, like all great things that we've always done through time. You mentioned the attack surface increasing. So in the last decade, or maybe just five years, the emergence of cloud computing has been a big deal, like for all sorts of technology companies. Can you talk about how that affects the attack surface? And then, you know, maybe project to like technology that's coming in uh, or on the horizon, like 5G or, or more uh, IoT and edge compute devices. Like what is this, how does this factor into the equation? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's a great, that's a great question. It's, a, it's honestly, it's a big part of, uh, of the future of security. Um, you know, when it, whenever I, you know, I talk about the topic, I kind of think back, um, I forget the source. So I, I apologize for, for whoever is kind of the first person to, to kind of put that, uh, that statement forward. But I remember back in university, I think a professor talking about how there's this, uh, this, you know, concept that existed, which was that as the complexity of a system or a software grows, um, it becomes, uh, it resembles more and more an operating system. So, you know, you can think of like Salesforce, right? Salesforce started as this like CRM system, let's say. And over time, as more and more complexity gets into it, the more and more now you you look like an operating system in terms of, you know, access control and how you manage users and how you manage various automations. So I think that concept very much applies to the cloud. Meaning we've started with, you know, a pretty basic AWS back in the day uh, where, you know, hey, you want a virtual machine, couple of clicks, you're good to go. But as we're adding more and more pieces to the cloud today, people rely, at, uh, rely on it more and more. What, it, what it's approaching is an operating system. And what that means is that, you know, in a way we're not, not reinventing the wheel, but we're kind of going full circle, right? Where... Um, a lot of the early security, cybersecurity was around endpoint security on your Windows box, for example, where, you know, the, the name of the game was about watching where the attacker would go and embed itself in the operating system. And I think we're kind of seeing that same cycle in the cloud. So, um, you know, more and more attackers are extremely savvy about understanding the, the corners of how the cloud providers are working. Um, and, and there's so much surface in there that I think we're just going to end up, 
you know, reviving in a way this this industry um, as part of the cloud. Definitely makes things challenging. And it feels like the big challenge of this industry is that technology just keeps growing. So coming up with security solutions for this high growth industry, it's, it's, it's really difficult. Speaking of, uh, you know, the security industry in today in 2022 looks very similar to information technology back in 2002. Solutions are black box tools. There's heavyweight contracts and not a lot of transparency. Today, more and more security professionals aren't satisfied with, you know, the current state of affairs. So, Lima Charlie kind of introduced this API first and infrastructure as a code approach. C- can you talk about first what that means and second, like why is it a solution that's better than you know what's out there today? Yeah, for sure, for sure. It's um, you know the the, the two ways that we usually uh, describe what you're mentioning or, or how we're we're changing so much. One is the the how, and one is the what. Uh, so to start with the how. Uh, as you alluded to it, right, this concept of very heavy contracts. So today, uh, a side effect of having so many different vendors and so many different products, uh, you know, each believing, you know, that they are best in breed and kind of the, the, the only game, you know, uh, uh, around the block. Um, the side effect of that is that it's really difficult to get access to most products, Right. Uh, you very often have to go, you know, through three, four different calls with salespeople, and then you might get access to a demo. And then after a couple more calls, uh, you know, they're going to validate that, you know, you're above their minimum, uh, because they have pretty high minimums and then they're going to decide, okay, you can do a trial. And so it's a very heavy process. So what the, the, how that we're changing is, uh, we're we're taking a reset, uh, very much like AWS did, like, like you were mentioning, you know, in two thousand two, um, or or I would say like many years ago. I forget the exact time frame, but uh, this reset is around saying, okay, you know, this this worked great when there was a couple, you know, types of products, and you only had to buy those couple types of products, and everybody had you know some magic secret sauce. But as the industry is maturing, that's not the truth anymore. Uh, it turns out that a lot of the things that you need for a security program just are not, you know, secret sauce, like possessed by, you know, one or two companies out there, uh, but rather they're really well understood concepts. So um, we are taking the playbook of AWS and just saying, you know, you can access whatever you'd like. The, 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 the documentation for everything is open. The API for everything is open. We don't believe in hiding any of that. Um, we would much prefer, uh, you know, finding the people that love what we do uh, naturally than than kind of artificially, you know, putting barriers. So we don't do minimums. We do everything in a self-serve fashion so that, uh, you know, you can go at your own pace and, uh, you know, try the thing over a weekend at home and build something cool. And then maybe a month later, you know, you decide to look at it at work. And so for us, that's the perfect story. So that's the how it's different than the vast majority of the industry. The what is also really interesting, which is kind of the late, the second part of what you mentioned. And that's the idea that much like AWS, what we're building are primitives. And what we mean by that is, uh, you know, we don't really believe in, uh, you know, making a, a silver bullet. Uh, here's a black box. There's two ways you can interact with it. 
and that's it. You have to take it, you know, uh, you know, you have to believe the Jedi mind trick that, that, you know, we keep you safe without necessarily knowing how you have to have faith. We're not big fans of that. So again, we kind of take this AWS approach where instead we're saying, look, uh, the, the underlying capa- uh, capability is available to all of our users. So for example, when we started with our first product was the EDR. Um, you know, we made EDR as a primitive, meaning uh, it was not, hey, here's an agent that magically protects you, but rather, here's an agent, here's a large set of capabilities that it has, here's how you can use all of those. And um, fundamentally, you have the keys and you're completely in control over it. Now, obviously, you know, pretty often, uh, somebody might want something, you know, where, where we make this a little bit easier, right? If you're thinking in terms of AWS and EC2, maybe you just want a, a database. And so they have AMIs, right? Which are kind of like easy ways to build on top of, of uh, EC2. And so we do the same kind of things, but they are layers on top of the, the fundamental truth, which is we give you full access to the solution that you need because we don't know exactly how you're going to end up using it. We want to empower you to use things uh, and assemble the right security posture using all of our primitives that makes sense for you. Um, And I think that's the coolest part, to be honest, about, you know, kind of our day to day is hearing about customers that are doing things that we never even thought about, uh, you know, using it in different ways. Um, It's really, you know, it's, uh, it's really cool. Great. So how did this all get started? What's the origin story or the insight that led to starting Lima Charlie? Yeah. So Lima Charlie started at first uh, as an open source EDR that I was writing while at Google. And, uh, you know, the, the drive for me to do this was essentially that I, you know, I left the government where most people were very, very good at what they did and empowered to do the things they needed. And then jumping into the private sector, I saw that uh, there's a lot of people lower on the maturity scale, but there's also a lot of very good people. But all of the vendors were sliding down that maturity uh, scale towards lowest common denominator. Meaning, you know, they were making an antivirus, right? Making, here's the package you deploy, and it keeps you safe. Don't worry about anything else. And and that really bothered me as, as a professional because very often I was in situations where I knew how to detect a specific thing and how to respond to it. I just didn't have the capability to do it. So I built the open source EDR um, to kind of put into the world this, this idea and shake a little bit you know, some of the EDR vendors to show that, hey, more could be done there and that it was okay to expose more of the product. And then when I left Google, um, I was at a point where, uh, you know, I kind of realized, okay, now's the time I want to start something, uh, start a company. And I wanted to start a company that was not, uh, you know, product X, but 10% better. Um, I've always been an N plus one person in my career, meaning always looking for, uh, you know, the thing that people hadn't thought about really doing or, or hadn't actually done and just like going past that. And so that's when I looked at the industry 
and um, and came to that realization that we were just talking about, you know, around the, the parallel between IT, you know, 20 years ago and, and security today. And um, that nobody in the space was doing this kind of infrastructure thing, uh, empowering the user. So, you know, we realized that it wasn't it wasn't the easy easy thing to do. It was not the the easy mode or, or the easy play to do, but it was really uh, by far the most interesting thing uh, to be building. And you know, we we really believe in the vision of where it's going. So that's. Um, that's made, you know, that's made the challenge, uh, very much, very much worthwhile for us. Who are the people behind Lima Charlie? How, how did you go about building your team? Yeah. So Lima Charlie, we started, um, very slowly in a way. So for many, um, you know, for a year or two, we were bootstrapped, uh, because, when we started, you can imagine, you know, it's a pretty bold vision. And uh, we were really afraid of um, of getting pigeonholed. Um, you know, there's a lot of EDR. EDR is a well-known segment. So we were afraid of getting pushed into that specific direction. Um, so it was uh, myself and my two co-founders, so um, Chris Luft and uh, Giovanni Picora, um, who, uh, you know, Chris has experience around early stage startups, um, has been in Vancouver actually and around the startup scene quite a bit. Um, Joe's experience in, um, in other very large um, security contractors and government as well. So, you know, we were kind of very like-minded. We were in for the big, uh, for the big game. And so for a long time, we just built what we knew had to be built. And, you know, we had a few customers early on and, and kind of went like that until um, until the right time came along to look for investors. Um, but at the time where we were able to really show investors what we had in mind, because for us, it was so critical to find uh, to find investors that believed in the, you know, the destination of where we were going and not for a quick return. So that's why, you know, we really started expanding in, um, I would say about two years ago. And today there's about 13 of us. So we're still pretty small, but we're a pure infrastructure company. So we're able to, to stay small and do very big things. That's really interesting. I'm torn between asking more about the technology stack or the right timing. So I think uh, my gut says technology stack. Talk about what you're doing with the team of 13 people. What kind of early decisions and choices did you have to make uh, when it comes to your technology stack? And just talk about it. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm an engineer, so I think that's a fascinating uh, <laughs> uh, question. The, um, you know, it, I think it relates to uh, the uh, the ways in which we're really, you know, aggressively focused. And, and so by that, I mean, you know, we're an infrastructure company, I mentioned. And in security, that's a little bit unusual. Most cybersecurity companies, you know, have a threat intel team and they have a services team and a monitoring team. You know, they have, they kind of try to do it all. Um, whereas we are, you know, aggressively neutral tool providers like a cloud provider. And so, if you take this, you know, this as like the foundation, um, it brings with it a couple of different values. I think the most interesting of those values is scaling. If you look back at 
um, let's say, you know, the, the companies like Carbon Black, and I, and I say that because, you know, Carbon Black have really led early on the EDR space, right? They were pioneers in the EDR space. And so I have a lot of respect for Carbon Black. But they were born in an era where things were different. They were pre-cloud, right? So there's always this basic concept from an engineering level that, hey, you know, I have a new customer. I'm going to deploy a server for that customer. And that implies a certain speed of operation, which is slow because it means I have to physically deploy servers. Um, and that means I have a package that runs on a server. And it means that if I want to scale up that server, you know, I have to scale vertically, meaning, you know, add more and more CPU cores to that machine. And there's limits to that. So when we started, uh, we started very much in the cloud era. And so we, we saw that really quickly that this was a huge risk for us, right? If you're trying to build a cloud provider, you have to be built like a cloud provider yourself. So we said early on, that um, we would maintain the least amount of infrastructure humanly possible, which is kind of funny for an infrastructure company in a way, right? Uh, the idea was that we knew that if we had to, you know, deploy a virtual machine and install some packages on it, and, you know, that was part of our day-to-day -day running of operations of, our, of the product, uh, that this was going to slow us down, that we would need to hire a lot of different, you know, sysadmins and all of the kind of the traditional um, uh, cost of running that infrastructure. So instead we said, you know what, we have to find a cloud provider ourselves and we have to use as much of their service set as possible. Um, so that means that uh, we don't really run standalone servers. You know, the closest that we do that uh, to that is uh, managed Kubernetes. Um, it, it, we use, you know, as much uh, container-based or um, cloud functions, you know, lambdas as possible. So serverless as much as possible, because that means that it's more pieces of infrastructure we don't have to maintain ourselves. So I think, you know, I think if I was to say really the critical choice for us was making that decision to minimize our infrastructure. And we ended up going with Google Cloud Platform as our cloud provider. And I think that uh, that's been extremely helpful, um, you know, especially as a startup that, have, that has to do a lot uh, without you know, a ton of resources. So GCP was really a good sweet spot for us to get a lot of value um, without having to do too much management around the cloud side of things. So yeah, and then within GCP, you know, we, we use a, a bunch of their different services to scale up. And the outcome of that is kind of magical because it means that when we get a new, you know, a new user on the platform, uh, whether they have 50 endpoints or they have 5,000 endpoints, it really does not matter at all. Um, everything just scales automatically, including our cost, right? Which as a startup is, is a pretty good thing as well to scale with, uh, with revenue. So, yeah. Cool. A couple of advantages there and some good early decisions. All right. The next question was timing. Why, why is now the right time for this company? Yeah, that, that's that's really the the key for us, right? Uh, you've heard, I'm sure, the expression uh, 
what is it? To be too early is to be wrong. So uh, for us, it's really critical that uh, I would say that we that we scale with the industry. So what I mean by that is, you know, what we put forward is a new way of looking at cybersecurity. Like, you know, quite frankly, it, it like it is a different way. Some people completely get it on day one. You know, they use cloud providers all the time. They just see the value. It's easy, but that's not everybody. So, um, so for us, the timing is that we see that this process of, of maturity process has started, right? Uh, the two, you know, two kind of big indicators for me uh, are things like, or, or really the biggest indicator is the, uh, the MITRE attack framework. Uh, in security, which is a, a framework that's used to start to categorize the types of threats and techniques, you know, to reason around security posture and, and how you protect things. And so, like, that's just the, the canary in a coal mine in a positive way of the industry maturing. So we know it's going in the right direction and we are getting a, a very good amount of traction with the people that get it today. We know it's going to be more and more. Um, and we want to grow with, uh, you know, proportionally to, to the, the part of the industry that gets what we're doing. So we are very, very reactive in that manner where, uh, you know, we tend to be conservative. But when we see people that, you know, that have, um, you know, th- we see that traction going up, we're very uh, uh, quick to scale up with that. Um, because, yeah, we're, we're trying to extend kind of the you know, the sweet spot for us as a startup in in the grand life cycle of, of cybersecurity. Let's keep talking about like kind of like the business model. You definitely have an interesting approach with, with less salespeople and easier access to your tools. Can you talk about your go-to-market strategy? What's behind that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's changed a little bit over, over the years. We used to not have sales or marketing at all. So for many years, we were 100% inbound, uh, you know, word of mouth. Uh, we got into really interesting companies like Snapchat during that time. And, and that worked fairly well. So at the time, the go-to-market, you know, I would say with a, with a small G, was really pure, uh, you know, product-led growth, right? Which is kind of this concept of uh, a little bit like Slack, right? Where you let people, people come to you. And they drive their own adoption story. And then they, over time, end up, you know, spending more money and kind of really materializing as customers. So that's, that's what we did a lot early on. And, uh, and that's been shifting for us as we've kind of had this realization that the PLG part of our funnel, so the, the top of funnel, right? So the, the, the people off the street that discover us is really, really good. And we're doubling down on the PLG aspect of what we do. Uh, so we're really reinvesting in making this, um, you know, this user experience and discovery of the product in a self-serve way, really, really great. And to this day, you know, I think we, we have one of the best experiences just, you know, from zero to value to be, uh, you know, it's pretty spectacular. Um, but what we discovered was that well, discovered. I mean, I think we always knew, but what we really started, you know, operating on is that security is just not um, a category of product that you spontaneously 
decide to adopt internally and that an individual contributor just brings it in and all of a sudden, you know, adoption happens. It's, it's heavy products uh, that have to be, you know, approved by, by the CTO and, and the CISO. So there's, there's a procurement process. So what we've done is we've started building our sales machine uh, still much, you know, very small, but uh, for us to take the people that do come into the PLG funnel that, you know, do see the value that we're doing and then to go and talk to those people that, you know, that we know have seen the product and then just bring them along to, uh, you know, to full adoption. So help them through that process. But at that time, at that point, you know, it's not a, uh, you know, a cold call pressure thing. Uh, at that point, we know that they love the product. Uh, we know that they want to come on board. So it's a, it's a super positive experience. So you're kind of getting into my next question, which is who's your ideal customer and, and how you build awareness amongst them? Yeah, so we, we, we tend to think um, about sort of uh, two different dimensions. Uh, so the first one is, uh, you know, we think about our customer or ideal customer from a people perspective first. So not so much a, uh, you know, which industry are they in, uh, but because in a way we're like a cloud provider, it means that, you know, we have a lot of products that can be things for many different people. The common denominator is that those people are in the security field and they are relatively sophisticated. We're not talking, you know, uh, you know, NASA type, but really just an, a company or an organization that has a few security people. Um, maybe they have somebody with a position like a security engineer or architect, you know, uh, that, that have the, the engineering ability. So for us, those are really the type of organizations that we have a really good fit with because we're not a black box, you know, thing. The other dimension is then how do we think about those various uh, industries? And what we found is that we sort of have three different uh, verticals in a way. One is the, um, you know, MSSP, so managed security service providers. Um, it's essentially people that perform security for other people. Uh, so we have a great fit with them in terms of scaling and infrastructure as code and, you know, no contracts, like all that stuff is great. Then we have the enterprise space. Uh, so a lot of cloud native companies that again, you know, they have those security people, they have the engineering bias, they get what we're doing, right? They understand cloud. So very good fit there again. And then the last one, which is also super exciting for us is that we have people building products on top of Lima Charlie. So uh, very early on, that was something we really wanted to do. We, you know, we had seen how AWS uh, became a go-to-market accelerator for tech companies, right? If you're today building something, you know, machine learning, um, you're not going to go and rack and stack all of your hardware. You're probably going to go to AWS so that you can get to market very, very quickly and scale with your business. And so we always wished that there was something like that in security that kind of gave the, the low-level capabilities to people that have great ideas that are really good at what they do um, and to spare them having to go and build all of this, you know, infrastructure that's been built, hun built hundreds of times already. So, uh, so people that build product on top of Lima Charlie are super exciting for us. 
let's talk real quick about the business model. And then I got some big picture questions. How do you make money with a software infrastructure as a service approach? We do it through kind of two different modes. Uh, the, the, you know, the first thing I, I guess I should say is, uh, you know, we, we got into this thinking, hey, um, let's be really exactly like a cloud provider and have some metrics and bill on those metrics per usage. You know, like if you go to AWS and you get built on the number of inserts in a database that you do. And what we realized pretty quickly is most people in cybersecurity don't want that. Um, they don't like the uh, difficult to predict uh, nature of that. So we ended up uh, trying to move as much as we can our billing into things that are more predictable. So for example, our EDR. As a user, you get to specify uh, you know, the size of your tenant, how, much, how, much, uh, and how many endpoints you want to serve as part of your tenant, and that's what you're going to be billed against. So it's a predictable uh, billing method. So as much as we can, we move into that mode. Now, there's some things you can't get, you know, around, uh, you know, billing per usage. For example, you know, ingesting CloudTrail logs uh, in, into the platform. So that is done on a per user uh, usage basis. That's generally how we bill. The exception to that being uh, that we have a special billing mode for people building products where, uh, you know, we can turn on pure usage billing where we say, you know, every single thing is based on a metric and that allows you as a product builder um, not to be billed for the cost of an EDR and to roll that into your product, but instead to be billed for the individual, you know, events that transit the network that you need to build your product. Um, so that's kind of the, the, you know, the added nuance there that, uh, that nobody else is doing in the industry. So that's kind of another one of those things that's pretty interesting around pricing for us. Big picture questions. You know, one thing I hear listening to a lot of podcasts is there's certain industries that you want to get into these days if you're a young technology professional. Healthcare is one of them. Cybersecurity is also one of the big ones. Uh, it's a popular recommendation. What kind of person in your experience does well in cybersecurity and what kind of advice do you have for people who either want to start or are very early in their careers in cybersecurity? That's, that's a great question. And I think it's, uh, I think it's very important because, uh, cybersecurity, I think has some aspects that are pretty fundamentally different than, than a lot of other industries, uh, even including tech. Uh, so specifically, my my advice is around um, curiosity and uh, the ability to work with uncertainty. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of tendencies for uh, I think you know universities and colleges and and you know boot camps to want to offer uh, you know a, a syllabus and a very uh, well defined envelope of what a security professional is and. Uh, I think that's fine, but what you uh, you know what you need to realize getting into security is that if you want to have um, you know an expanding career uh, and really make it into a, an interesting career, very 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 quickly, you will have to learn uh, by yourself about things that are probably uh, very badly documented. Um, where you don't have access to somebody giving you, you know, a syllabus or anything like that. Um, 
because fundamentally security is about the idea of people using, you know, the bad guys using things in the way that they were never meant to be used. And so that means that you're going to have to look in, you know, really dark corners of uh, the API for X and Y to understand how it's working under the hood. Um, and there's not going to be any documentation about that. So I, I think it's just a, uh, you know, it's an important thing to realize before getting into it. You're not getting into something like, uh, and I don't mean anything like negative about it, right? But like plumbing where, you know, I bet, you know, you, there's only so much you kind of, you know, learn about the techniques around plumbing. It's a well understood kind of problem set. Um, and you're not going to have to reverse engineer some like super crazy stuff, right? So, yeah. So I, I think to me, that's the most important part. Uh, so, you know, as you're learning, as you're, as you're looking to come on board this industry, um, get used to that very early on, um, you know, find the parts of it that, uh, that you're really curious about, find the projects that you're interested in and, uh, and, you know, go for those goals, even though you may not have any idea of how you're going to get there. Uh, because that's just the name of the game, I think, in security. I love it. That was great. Speaking of name of the game, my last question here is, how did you name the company Lima Charlie? And can you talk about the meaning? Uh, sure. So th it's, it's sort of a split meaning. So uh, the, the, the first official one is that Lima Charlie is a NATO phonetic alphabet for loud and clear. Um, so, uh, you know, on, on the radio, kind of a or call back to indicate that, you know, you received the, the information or transmission from the other side very well. Um, the unofficial aspect of it is that uh, very early on when I started some of the sort of the early developments and investigations into what was going to become Lima Charlie someday, um, at the time I was living in the south of France uh, for a year and I was working out of this tiny cafe every morning. And they were very patient with me uh, because not many people worked out of cafes there. It was kind of a weird thing. And the cafe was called Cafe LC. Uh, so it was a little bit of a, a thank you from, uh, you know, from me. Oh, that's funny. And uh, proof that not every company gets started in a garage in Palo Alto. Some of them are in the south of France at a coffee shop. So before we go, uh, Maxime, what's the best way for our listeners to reach you and learn more about Lima Charlie? Yeah, absolutely. So limacharlie.io, um, our webpage, uh, our website. Uh, we also have a Slack community where we're super happy to, you know, chat with people. So slack.limacharlie.io. And if you want to reach out directly to me, uh, obviously LinkedIn or Twitter, I'm uh, at underscore Maxim. So my first name, M-A-X-I-M-E-L-B. Awesome. Great. Uh, check out the Slack. Check out uh, the social accounts. Uh, we're going to end the show there. If you liked it, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating there too. Thank you, Maxime, for joining the show today. We appreciate your time and all your insights. Thank you.